on February the 7th of this month, there was a tweet that was submitted across Twitter. It has now affectionately been known as the Tweet Heard Round the World. This was given by Utah Pastor Brian Sauvey. He posted a comment to his Twitter account regarding Christian modesty for women. This is what Brian said. Dear ladies, there is no reason whatsoever for you to post pictures of yourself in low-cut shirts, bikinis, bra and underwear, or anything similar, ever. Not to show your weight loss journey, not to show your newborn baby, not to document your birth story. Sincerely, your brothers. Well, the public reaction to this tweet was generally speaking visceral that uh, is arising from a sudden impulse of feeling rather than from logical thought. And it was also militant. The backlash was pretty severe towards Brian. It could be compared to the Nazis in Indiana Jones who dared to look into the Ark of the Covenant and then their head exploded. Many thousands of replies came into Brian. Most were slanderous and hateful. Not a few with immodest or fully nude pictures attached just for the sake of spiting him for what he said. None of us is surprised that the world reacts this way when Christians proclaim that God has a standard for modesty. What is alarming is that many of these women who chose to debase themselves publicly for the sake of their freedom were outspoken Christians. They claim that God has not spoken precisely on how one should dress and that this is a matter of Christian liberty. This gets us to the text for this morning. The Word of God is sufficient in tota for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That is to give us a competency and a readiness for every good work. Every good work, including getting dressed in the morning. God has not left His children in the dark in regards to how they should dress themselves. He not only reveals in the Bible what constitutes nakedness, but also how to clothe it and what kind of beauty pleases Him. And that is the kind of beauty that lasts for eternity. And that's what today's text is all about. Well, beloved, if you look at your text this morning, Peter says in the ESV version of the Scriptures, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but, so there's your contrast, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I don't normally give sermon titles, but if you'd like one today, you might think of Peter's words here as the tale of two beauties. The tale of two beauties. This is a contrast. Basically and fundamentally, all Peter's saying is, don't do this, but instead, do this. Don't do this, but do this. Like last week, there's no cryptic language here. There's not a lot of mystery as to what he's saying. But we do have to ask ourselves the question as we begin our study this morning. How does the concept of what you wear relate to a wife's submissiveness to her husband? He's just addressed that in verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then he talks about their respectful or pure conduct 
with fear. So consider what Peter says and think about how cancelable the inspired apostle is in these words. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, be quiet in the home and win them without a word. Wives, dress modestly. Wives, have a gentle and quiet spirit and let that be what adorns you. Now that's going to get anybody kicked off of Twitter as it did Brian Sauvé, or at least got him a lot of hate mail. People say things like, why? What does clothing have to do with her submission anyway? Doesn't Peter know that it is the heart that matters? Why put undue pressure on women? They already have it so hard in a male-dominated world. The abuse and violence that women have to endure is horrific. And shouldn't men be responsible for their own eyes and mind? To say that a woman's dress shows her submission is harmful to women, strengthens the patriarchy, and promotes rape culture. It's her body anyways. Can't she do what she wants with it? Well, Peter is telling women to do all of these things, and any pastor who preaches similarly to what Peter's saying is probably going to be considered to trying to promote a cult. I mean, just think about it, right? Women, you need to submit to your husbands. Women, practice being quiet in your home. Women, dress with modesty. These are commands that come down from God through the inspired text that fit the greater narrative and story of Scripture. Like we talked about with last week's submission, it doesn't just mean do this. It's part of the larger picture of God saving the world through His redemptive acts in the hearts of both men and women. And Christian modesty, and Christian modesty particularly here with women, does fit that bill. And beloved, we can trust the Word of God. So, how are submission and apparel linked? Well, most translations, like the ESV here, uses the word adornment or adorning. The Greek word is the word cosmos, which has a a very broad semantic domain. In Greek, words can have a lot of different meanings. They can touch a lot of different concepts. That's what we mean when we talk about a semantic domain. The word cosmos, as you might think, well, that, that, that's where we get the word cosmos, right? It, it means world. It means universe. But it also means the things that constitute you, that govern you, or that arrange you, that put you together, right? So imagine two girls who are people watching at the mall. One girl says to the other, after engaging in some small talk, look, you see that girl over there? Isn't that Beth? She's got on another new dress. That's an expensive one too. I can't figure out how she can afford those. To which the other girl replies, you know better than that. Clothing is Beth's whole world. Now you see, we speak in terms like this, beloved, when we talk about the cosmos of a person, the way that a person is arranged or constituted or structured. Peter is implying something similar here. It's not just her effects. It's not just earrings. It's not just hair. But it also speaks to that which governs a person. That's what we've talked about in the past, an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. Are you governed By what's on the outside, Peter says, don't let that be the case. Or are you governed or arranged or adorned or constituted by what's on the inside? And Peter says, yes, let it be that. That's what's pleasing in the eyes of God. 
He says that it cannot be her appearance. Well, why not? Because she's already governed, not by what's on the outside of her, but by the Lord Jesus and also the authorities that he's put in her life. That would be a father or a husband. Being ruled by one's appearance we call vanity, which essentially is idolatry. It is the same as statue worship or greed or wealth or lust or murderous thoughts. Being vain, being idolatrous is damnable. It doesn't reflect the reality of what God has done in the heart of the one in whom he has come to dwell. The Apostle Peter here is interested in consistency. He and ultimately God are concerned with what is on the outside matching the new reality that he's brought within. That's what he's concerned with. The cover of a book, beloved, does two things. It both conceals the book, but it's also meant to reveal what's inside the book. Do you see that? It conceals and reveals. What is revealed by the cover should align with what's in the book. And also, in this case, with one's station of life. That is, wives being in submissive to husbands, even if, worst case scenario, they're unbelievers. We live in a world that says, you can't judge a book by its cover. That's not what the Bible says. Even a young man is known by his actions, by whether his behavior is pure and upright. Proverbs 20 verse 11. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The action that Peter sees here and the judgment that's going to take place, Peter knows that it's going to happen. What's going to happen to these husbands? They've got a submissive wife. She's quiet, but then she dresses in a way that does not match that. He knows they're going to see it. He knows. If you look at the end of verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, ongoing action in the past, he knows all the time, this guy's eyes are on his wife. Is her testimony inside going to be matched by what she wears on the outside? He's encouraged her to win her husband to greater obedience to Christ, whatever that looks like, through her Christian conduct. Now, he starts by saying, this is what we shouldn't see. He says, let it not be the outward of a person. Question, just to get us started, does God have a problem with what's on the outside of us? Is He opposed to outward beauty? Does He only care about our souls? What about our, what about our bodies? Oversimplification here, beloved, results in a Gnostic heresy. Okay, This is a denial of the flesh, spirit good, flesh bad. God hates the flesh, so we only care about what's inside of us. And largely, American culture has gone this route. We become overly pietistic. That is, it's Jesus in me and my heart. That's all that matters. Let the world go to hell because I'm going to be okay because it's just me and Jesus. That's not at all what God's concerned with. 
He's concerned with all of life, inside and outside, and he wants the inside and the outside to reflect one another and match. The descendants of the Anabaptists, the Quakers, the Amish, and the Mennonites have all at times in their history oversimplified texts like this in this way. As a result, you can see why their modesty standards are not only very strict, but oftentimes they're drab, and frankly, they're quite ugly. There's no reason why we should have to look ugly for the sake of modesty. God loves beauty. He said earlier in chapter 2, I want your conduct to be excellent. Remember what that word means. It means beautiful. It should look glorious to the world because it has to match the inner reality of the heart. Well, beloved, God is not opposed to outward beauty. He wrote a whole book of the Bible on a couple describing one another's appearance, and it's pretty exciting. See Song of Solomon. He is adamantly opposed, though, to hypocrisy. Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean, what? The outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that a woman and a man because modesty is a men's issue too, and we'll talk about it a little bit today. Both men and women who have outsides that don't match their insides, this new reality that Christ has brought into their life, have work to go in their sanctification. They need to give thought to how this plays in to the larger story of what God wants for us and how we're going to win this world for Christ. What should a husband not see? The outside that doesn't match the inside. Or you might say an outside that completely eclipses the inside. It's so important that I can't even get into the person to see who are they. It's all outside. This is my cosmos. This is my world. This is everything. What governs me? He mentions three things here. He mentions the braiding of hair, which is likely referring to some kind of elaborate braid, but it could also be convicting to a girl who always has to have her hair done a certain way. I've always got to have this kind of braid. I've always got to have this kind of do. I've got to put these kinds of pins in. It's the only way my hair will look good. My question is, does her hair, excuse me, does her world revolve around her hair? God is not opposed to hair. He gave it to her as her glory. Whatever you think about head coverings, we can all agree that a woman's hair is given to her as some kind of covering. You might think it is the covering or it represents the foundational nature of the fact that a girl needs to wear a head covering. But either way, it is a glory to her. It is her covering. And it also points to her being under authority. Peter mentions the woman's hair in the context of the conversation about submission. He also mentions the gold jewelry. Your word... Uh, excuse me, your Bible might have the word jewelry added. The Greek word here is just a pretty generic term for gold. It doesn't just mean jewelry. It could mean any kind of gold. Does it mean the gold of a harlot? Jeremiah chapter 4. And you, O devastated one, speaking of his people Israel, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself look beautiful. Your lovers despise you. 
They seek your life. It could be that both the licentious person and the legalistic person have come this far in the text and already see the inside's not matching the outside. Both the one who gives themselves to no rules, whatever they want, and the one who says, my rules are very strict, it has to be this way. Both need Jesus. Both need Jesus. Well, in ESV, it says the clothing that you wear. Your translation might have fine apparel. So some translations are seeing here that Peter's talking about a certain kind of extravagant dress. In the Greek, however, it just says the putting on of clothes. That's literally what it says in the Greek. Now, I've got a question for you. Do texts like this prohibit a woman from braiding her hair and wearing jewelry? Well, my follow-up question would be, do you want women to wear clothes? I think that we all do. Okay? Since we're okay with that, we should be okay with the fact that she should be able to braid her hair and also wear jewelry. To some extent, that's not prohibited here. If she can't wear jewelry or if she can't braid her hair, you're also saying that what Peter's saying is she should not put on clothes. Remember, it's about the cosmos. It's about that which governs or directs or guides her life. This does not, as some joy-sucking indie fundies might say, prohibit bracelets and braids. These people are what you might call Christian Minox. They're chewing on the power cables of God's Millennium Falcon and ruining everyone's fun. They have to deal with passages like these, though, from Isaiah 61. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, what does God give them? A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He gives them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. He gives them the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness. Scott Horde mentioned this verse on Tuesday night. The planting of the Lord that He, who? He, that Yahweh may be glorified because of how He adorned them. Also from Ezekiel, in the negative sense. As he's convicting the people, he says, I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I also adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your hand and a necklace around your neck. I also, this is God by the way, put a ring in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a splendid crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And this is in the negative sense because God goes on to say, but your inside doesn't match your outside. That's exactly the point Peter's trying to make here. These two have got to line up. They've got to make sense together. Beloved, realize this. The problem that we have with stuff like clothes and with stuff like cars and houses and money is never inherently in the stuff. It's in the sinful heart of man. It's in what we do with it. God has no problem with putting bracelets on people and beautiful headdresses and nose rings. I'm not getting to fight on that one later, okay? It says it right here in the text. I'm just reading the Bible. It's always been the sinful heart of man. And what that man does with the stuff. 
Because Romans 1 tells us that we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. What's Peter got a problem with? I want the stuff. I want my life to be about the stuff that makes me. No, 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 no. It's who God has already made you. The new creation. Jesus coming back to making all things new has already started in the heart. It's already started. And it should show. Everybody should see it. That unbelieving husband, your believing husband, people at church, everybody should see it. The Legacy Standard Bible and some other translations add the word merely. And I think that's a good addition to the text. Do not let your adorning merely be external. It's to emphasize the point that Peter's making. God's not opposed to what's on the outside, but it can't be everything. Paul David Tripp once said, and I don't necessarily agree with a lot of things that Paul David Tripp said lately, but he did say this, and I thought that it was helpful. Any good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Any good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Now I want to stop here in the midst of this text where we are right now, and I want to ask a question. Is there a biblical standard for modesty? Is there a biblical standard for Christian modesty? For modesty for men and modesty for women. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. He means the right kinds of clothes. And then he goes on to say what? With modesty and self-restraint. Why is God so concerned with what's on the inside? Because it's going to work its way out. It's going to work its way out. If I'm a modest of heart, submissive, if that's, ladies, who you are, that's going to work its way out in every area of your life. He says, Paul, continuing here in 1 Timothy, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, says almost identically what Peter says, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women who profess godliness. Now before I go any further, we talk about Christian modesty and a biblical standard. I want to say a few things. First of all, my goal here is not to create a new branch of fundamentalism. I want to give you biblical categories to think about when you think about Christian modesty and what a woman or a man should wear. I know I'm running a risk here. To this point, at Christ the King, we've dealt with almost every cancelable issue. Submission to the government, resistance to tyranny, slavery and abuse, women submitting in quietness to their husbands. And today, yes, I'm going to talk about what a woman should or should not wear. Ladies, let me say this at the outset. If you hear today from the Word of God on modesty and you change your whole wardrobe, it won't make any difference in the eyes of God if it does not begin with conviction and repentance. It must begin there. It must begin there. Christianity, beloved, take this to the bank. It is an inside-out religion. That's what it is. All other religions are do these things and then maybe the God, whoever he or she or what is, will eventually have favor on you. No. Christianity is I've already favored you, so live out your new life in Christ. That's what Christianity is. I will say that I have never in my life, and I'm speaking personally here, 
I've never in my life heard a sermon publicly preached from the pulpit on Christian female modesty. I mean that. Countless times have I seen women with low-cut tops, cleavage exposed, or wearing skin-tight leggings or yoga pants, or running in sports bras or Sophie shorts or bikinis, which is essentially underwear that women allow themselves to wear in public, or mini skirts, or sheer fabric that covers the body, but it really doesn't. And I've seen all of these on Christian women, and sometimes in the context of a gathered church assembly. Youth ministries are notorious for stuff like this. I've been in churches where there's so much meat exposed it would put a Tyson chicken plant to shame. It's at this point that someone is likely to feel that sense of, you better be fair. It's always the girls who have to hear this discussion. Why not the boys? Well, ladies, I've already said, male modesty and male immodesty in our day is a huge problem, okay? Insert your favorite Chad meme, right? I heard a pastor once say, it must be understood that every time you hear someone rant or rail that a conversation about modesty is unfair or legalistic and that it's unfair or legalistic to have rules pertaining to clothing such individuals are directly and unequivocally attacking the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether they realize it or not, they are in effect saying, my dress standard is a neutral zone. Jesus does not speak to this issue. Young ladies in this church, thank God for your Christian parents who keep you from dressing like the world. Young ladies, since you were far younger than you are today, the world has been saying things to you like, it's time to see what I can do. Test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Jesus did not leave men and women without a standard for their dress. So, how should we think biblically about modesty? I was helped greatly by a book by Jeff Pollard called Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America. It is no longer in print. You can find used copies on Amazon. It is a very small book. Take you about a day or two to read through. And it is excellent material. I highly recommend it. Beloved, you know that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were naked and they were unashamed. But after sin came, shame came. And God, in His grace, clothed them. The story of the gospel is the story of our nakedness before God and our shame being covered. That's the story of the gospel. God loves the idea of clothes. Even in the New Testament, Paul gets this idea coming from the Corinthian church. Well, so we'll go back to the way it was before we sinned, when we get to heaven, he says, no, 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 no. You're not going to be unclothed. You will be further clothed. God loves. It is beautiful to think of a covering. This is a great idea in the big scheme, the big picture of God's story. 
This is integral to his gospel. In Genesis 3.21, God covered Adam and Eve with the Hebrew word is akutanet. That is a coat or you might call it a tunic-like garment. The Hebrew word meant a garment that covered approximately from the neck or collarbone to the knees. Now, before anyone gets antsy with questions whether or not I'm arguing for a return to dress worn during the times of Scripture, I am not. Pollard says in his book that the kutanet only suggests the purpose and function of clothes and the approximate area of the body that they were designed to cover. Think about it for just a minute, beloved. They were naked. They were ashamed. God clothed them. The clothing that God chose was from approximately their neck area, collarbone area, to their knees. Rarely did it go below that. When God covered nakedness, this was the area of the body that He chose to cover. Not only this, but when God clothed the priesthood in Exodus, He clothed them the same way. His holy servants ministering before the ark had to be covered the same way. They even had to wear undergarments so their nakedness would not be exposed to the altar they walked up on. In the New Testament, Jesus was clothed the same way. The Greek equivalent of a kutanet was what Jesus wore in His time on earth. And lastly, speaking of being further clothed, the robes given by God to the martyrs in Revelation were the same thing. It was a garment that God gave them when they cried out to Him for justice and He said, here's a white garment, wait a little while. Essentially, a kutanet. Something that covered from roughly the neck to the knees. Generally speaking, while in public, men and women should be covered from their neck and collarbone area to their knees. So someone might ask, what if I'm covered but the clothes are too tight? Well, I think a good question to ask yourself is, are you covering your nakedness or are you coloring your nakedness? Are you covering your nakedness or are you coloring your nakedness? Listen to a Puritan. I'm not going to tell you his name until I'm done with this quote. Why are they, Christian women, in favor of going around with their naked shoulders exposed and their paps hanging out like a cow's bag? Why are they for painting their faces, for stretching out their neck, and for putting themselves unto all the formalities which profound fancy leads them to? Is it because they would honor God? Is it because they would adorn the gospel? Is it because they would beautify religion and make sinners to fall in love with their salvation? No, no. It is rather to please their lusts. That is John Bunyan. Question, are you interested in honoring the Lord above matching beauty trends? Here's another analytic to think of. This is from Puritan Thomas Brooks. Such as fear the Lord should go in no apparel except first, as they are willing to die in. Second, that they would appear before the Ancient of Days in. And third, to stand before the judgment seat in. Beloved, just to summarize this idea, modesty 
is submission that you wear. Modesty, Christian modesty, is submission that you wear. It's taking what God has given us and saying, I agree. I agree. And I'm submitting. The outside must match the inside. Puritan Richard Baxter said, Though it be a man's sin, speaking primarily to ladies, though it be a man's sin and vanity that is the cause of lust, it is nevertheless in our day the woman's sin to be the unnecessary occasion. Women must walk among sinful persons as you would do with a candle among gunpowder. And they should serve Christ with their apparel by expressing what? Humility, self-denial, chastity, and sobriety to draw others to imitate them in good rather than to serve the devil and pride and lust by it by drawing men to imitate in evil. The big picture, it is very common in our world today to hear my body, my choice. Many evangelical Christian Christians will say, and Christian women will say, my Christian liberty, my choice. The Word of God says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with what? Your body. What is God saying? What is God saying to both Christian men and Christian women? He's saying, my body my choice. Those who live under the lordship of Jesus hear their God say, my body, my choice. Not Chris's and Chris's standard, not any pastor out there, not your favorite leader, not your friends, his body, his choice. I got to ask you a question and I've asked this several times since we've been in 1 Peter. Do you want all of Christ for all of life? Do you want it? Are you interested in Jesus taking over every area of our lives? Peter is, and that's why he starts here. That's why he's dealt with citizens. That's why he's dealt with slaves. That's why he's dealing with Christian women. He'll deal with Christian men. He'll deal with elders. Why is he doing this? Because the kingdom work begins here. It begins among us. It begins in the community of Christ. Sisters, have you dishonored God with your attire? Brothers, too, consider. Are you making excuses for the things that you wear when you know that you shouldn't? Do you blame the boys for the fact that your wardrobe is so restricted? Here is such good news. Jesus died for that. Jesus died for it. It's paid for. That's it. No matter what perspective you've come from, no matter how many times in the past you've done this, Jesus died for it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, not a little bit, because I was wrestling with that outfit, my husband's opinion this morning. There's no condemnation left. He swallowed it up. Did you know that Jesus, we see all these pictures of him, if you can tolerate violation of the second commandment, pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross. And he's got a loincloth on. Romans didn't crucify people with clothes on. Jesus was naked on the cross. And that is exactly what God's communicating. All your shame I put on Him. The nakedness, the exposure, it was all on Jesus. And now what does He give you? A cloak of righteousness. He covers you. 
He still receives repenters today, beloved. He still receives repenters. If you're convicted about this, repent. Jesus' arms are open. He's ready to have you. Let me give a few points of application before we go on to verse 4. Both men and women should conceal their own nakedness. Biblically speaking, covering your nakedness is from approximately the neck to the knees. No one outside of a one flesh union should see your nakedness. This includes moms in the home in front of their children. And moms, I would encourage you to be careful about that. Young sons and young daughters, pay attention to what you wear, even at very young ages. Be cautious, be judicious. Now there are exceptions to this rule. We do see in the scriptures Peter and the other apostles after Jesus has died and been resurrected out in a boat and the Bible describes Peter as having been stripped for work. Now, I kind of wonder, why was that? Okay, If we're always supposed to be covered, why was Peter stripped for work? He's in an all-male context. He's in a rural setting. He's away from society, right? In that context, it seems that there was nothing inappropriate about him being uncovered in front of these men to do a job. However, what's so interesting about that passage, and I always wondered at this. Pollard's book really kind of helped me see this. Peter grabs his coat, he throws it on, and then he jumps in the water. Now that's so strange. Like your outfit makes it harder for you to swim. Why not put it on or tie it around your waist? Then when you get to the shore, you can put it on. Jesus was at the shore. He was coming back into polite society. He wasn't going to come back in indecent. He put his coat on and swam with it on. So when he came before his Lord, he was covered. It's interesting. Also, exceptions, of course, might include a trusted doctor who is required to serve you. That would be an instance where some sort of exposure is necessary. Well, let's look at not what she shouldn't do, but what she should do. Briefly as we close. To this point, Peter has said, not this, but your cosmos, the adornment or government of self, should be what? He says it's the hidden person of the heart. Women should be governed and adorned by the new creation which is in them and will inevitably come out of them. I heard one theologian say, the hidden person is not the inner side of the person, but the whole human being as determined from within. Tom Schreiner says something similar. What a person is on the inside does not remain hidden, as if Peter thought about some private interior Christian life hidden from the world, but manifests itself in the way wives behave in everyday life. Sisters, if this is new to you and thinking about these concepts of modesty, don't worry, you were meant to be seen as beautiful. I taught the abstinence curriculum in the public schools for 13 years. Girls in every class for 13 years wanted to know two things. Does he love me? Am I beautiful? For 13 years straight. There's something in the nature of a woman that wants to hear that. And it's right. They were created to display beauty. It's not whether they were created to show their beauty. It's which kind of beauty they will show. It's not whether, but which. Think about the story of Abigail of Carmel. In 1 Samuel, the Holy Spirit says of Abigail, the woman was good in insight and beautiful in appearance. 
She was good in insight and beautiful in appearance. Now, in Hebrew, they're going to put the most important thing first. And you see that come out in the rest of the story. God's not rejecting the exterior, but He lists the superior first. She, that is Abigail, arose after her husband had done some really messed up things and David was getting ready with his army to go kill all of Nabal's household. The woman, Abigail, arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said to David, Behold, your maidservant is a servant woman to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail hurried and arose, and she rode on the donkey, and with her five young women who were about her, she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. She bowed herself. She showed her submission. She showed the kind of woman she was by her actions. And David said, I'd like to have her as my wife. And that's exactly what happened. God sees it no matter what. I'm sure you've been thinking this whole time of 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this is an incorruptible beauty, Peter says. There are two things that women naturally desire. They want to be seen as beautiful, and they wish that their beauty would never fade. This is not inappropriate insofar as it goes, because glory was made to be seen and its value given, and we were all made for glory that will never fade. The problem for Christian women is that they have so emphasized and even celebrated this glory to the point that it becomes their worship. Not the worship of God, but worship of self. The strange thing is that God created them for incorruptible and immortal beauty. That's what the word aptharto means, the word incorruptible or immortal in your translation. Women have the opportunity to work towards a beauty that is real and everlasting and also precious towards God. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Chris, you only get one life. You only live once. For years, my dad worked at a, at a tire store, and he was a salesman of commercial-grade tires, the big ones that go on the cat excavators and things like that. Every tire company out there today has a tire that they could sell you today that will never wear out. They currently make these. They have them. As you might guess, selling tires to the public that never wear out is not an excellent marketing strategy. Therefore, they are not for public consumption. But today, there's a tire that you can put on your vehicle and you'll never have to replace it, ever. What is Peter saying here? Ladies, I've got a beauty that you can put on and it'll never fade. It'll never fade. This one lasts forever and it's what pleases your father. It's what he's pleased with. This is what he looks down and he says, that's beautiful. Doesn't every girl want to hear her father say, you're beautiful. What about our heavenly father? Lewis said, a quote we're all familiar with, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And ladies, I would say that if you have been, as you sense now, the Holy Spirit leading you to see, overly concerned with your attire, 
The truth is you're missing the joy. You're missing the freedom. You're missing the glory of living in all that Christ has for you. All of his new covenant promises, all belonging to you. That's what Christian women today are missing. Because they're pursuing and being ruled by what's outside. The quiet spirit lasts forever. The Greek word hysuchios, I think that's how to pronounce that, means quiet or peaceable. Ladies, I'm not trying to pull something over you by manipulating the text. This is what it says. We had years ago at Basswood a ladies get together where some Christian women were um, allowed to get up on the stage and speak to the ladies about some various questions that women have about life and what's going on and how to, how to make decisions as a Christian woman. They had women of all different ages up there too. And I can tell you this, it was said over and over again by many. The woman who had the greatest influence said almost nothing. She sat on the stage, she listened, she smiled, and when she was called upon, what she said was solid gold. By the way, she was also an older woman. It's beautiful. It is beautiful in the eyes of God. A meek, gentle, or humble spirit lasts forever. This is from the commentary of the Outline of Biblical Usage. Meekness towards God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept His dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness towards evil people, you might think of the unbelieving husband in our current text example, means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that He is using them to purify His elect, and that He will deliver His elect in His time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with the self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Both men and women, if we think about modesty, men, we think about what we wear and also leading our Christian women to be the kind of women that they should be. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. We are going to need God's help and His Holy Spirit to guide us. Then, at the end of verse 4, Peter gives the value of a modest woman, which to God is of great worth, inestimable value, and is very costly. Sisters, you shouldn't want to conform to any standard of behavior apart from your desire to please your Heavenly Father. He has pulled each one of you out of the darkness into His marvelous light, where you can have true beauty and have it forever. Remember what Jesus said, that apart from Him, we can't do anything, but with Him, we will bear much fruit. I want to give you three principles for change as we close today. These are from Pollard's book. First, the glory of God must be our primary aim. If we're going to change anything about our appearance or our heart, the glory of God must be our primary aim. Number two, 
Love for Christ must be your motive. What motivates you must be the Savior and His work on your behalf. Who does not want to give everything for the God who gave Himself so completely and so fully for us? That must be our motive, love for Christ. And lastly, number three, as our corrective, remember that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we are not our own. Now, did you notice anything about Pollard's instructions there? The glory of God, love for Christ, and that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian aspect to our holiness. God's glory is our aim. Christ's love is our motive. And the Holy Spirit's place in our lives as our corrective to our misbehavior. Some final thoughts as we close. There are some outfits, ladies, that you may have thought of during this morning that you say, that's got to go. With your husband's guidance, prayerfully considering keeping clothes for public use, including in front of just your children that cover from the neck to the knees. Husbands, your wife may need to go shopping now. Are you willing to allow her to do that? I would also encourage you to have a conversation with your spouse about your attitude. Does it reflect the qualities laid out here in Scripture? If not, why not? Husbands, be honest, but also gentle with your wife as you work through this. And I would encourage you lastly to commit to God to focus on your attitude and your heart. Take time each day to commune with the Lord in prayer. Before you think to speak to your husband about something, something, offer it to God in prayer first. What if you committed to using as many words in prayer to God as you think you will need to use with your husband about a certain issue? And finally, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you might be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, beloved, in verses 3 and 4, this is Peter's tale of two beauties. This is what we should not do, be governed or controlled by exclusively our external, but instead be controlled by Christ and His reign in our hearts. In order to underscore one more time the difference between these two, let me give you two more quotes, one from a reprobate, and another from a man of God. This first one is from Valerie Steele, fashion expert, quote, and author. She says, All my research has led me to believe that the concept of beauty is sexual in origin, and the changing ideal of beauty apparently reflects shifting attitudes towards sexual expression. According to the world, sisters, your beauty is merely sexual in nature. That's it. You are at best some man's idol. In reality, this makes a woman an object, candy, or a toy. The same people who fume at men who objectify women, in essence, are shouting... We don't need you to objectify us, exploit us, or use us. We'll do it ourselves. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Contrast this with another tweet from Pastor Brian Save. 
quoting a Latin proverb, and I think it summarizes our text this morning very well. Vincit, qui si vincit, which means he conquers who conquers himself. He conquers who conquers himself. Dearest sisters, Jesus made you more than a conqueror. What that looks like is mastery of self. It begins there. A submission first to the will of God in all things, including standards for modesty and beauty, and then allowing God to conquer the world, starting with a lost or disobedient husband, and then children, sisters at church, friends, family, neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. Not principally through words, but chiefly through beautiful, immortal, quiet, and gentle, God-pleasing self. This is what is so precious in the eyes of God. And that does not prohibit a woman from sharing the gospel. She should do this liberally and regularly. Satan will try to tell you that this is a sham, this is a cage, this is a cult, this is legalism. Don't let them shackle you up. You have so much to offer to God and this silence that's being demanded of you, so on and so forth. Sisters, have you heard whispers like that? Look at the Word of God. Look at these two verses we've looked at this morning. The Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? As a good shepherd, He continues to lead you by streams of living water. And this is the crisis moment of faith. Will you trust Jesus to do through you what He promised to do through your submission to His Word? Have no fear, sisters, because Jesus always keeps His promises. Anytime you are faithless, He remains faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, in the dark about issues of Christian attire, both inside and outside. But this is a message that is evil in our world today. Our world hates the Lordship of Jesus Christ and has sought for many, many years, including in this country, to throw off the reign of your Christ. The reign of your Christ is over not just our governors, not just business leaders, not our legal system and our tax code, and not even just our churches and our homes, but our individual selves. The Lordship of Christ first begins in our hearts. Jesus, would you give us courage to lay hold of, by faith, these truths revealed from your Scripture and how we should adorn ourselves both inside and out. Help us to search your word diligently, finding out how we can conform ourselves in every way to the pattern that we see in Christ Jesus. And if conversations come where there is a disagreement with other brothers or sisters, give us charity. Help us to love one another in spite of that. 
but help us to remember that you care about these issues. You have spoken to them. Thank you for your good word through the Apostle Peter. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.